This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Happy Tuesday to everybody. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh at Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and life questions or general questions about our faith. Whatever's on your heart, all you have to do is call and I'll do the best I can to answer. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions in that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer with one finger. Call now, and you will be able to use the hands-free feature. One more time for our main number, it's 340-9585. I don't have a bunch of stuff to talk about today, so let's just get right to the questions. The first one comes from Carlos, our friend on the northeast side of town. Uh, He says, Hi, Pastor Ron. Happy New Year to you and Paula. Uh, I wanted to ask if you could explain 1 Corinthians fourteen 15. I'm not sure what it means when it says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. And then he says, thank you. Carlos, good question. It is about tongues, and there's a lot of confusion uh, about, uh, about tongues. A couple of things. One, you have to get the context of the passage, so let me do that. And Paul is speaking about the spiritual gifts. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the spiritual gifts and what they do. Uh, in, in chapter 13, he talks about the heart with which we use the spiritual gifts. It's famously called the love chapter, and it is belongs perfectly between these two chapters. Well, when he gets to chapter 14... He's talking about the orderly use of those gifts in the church body, Carlos. So I'm going to go all the way back to verse 5, and I'll work my way up. I'm not going to do a Bible study, do all of them, but um, the, the idea here is their abuse of spiritual gifts, and one of the gifts they were abusing was the gift of tongues. Now Paul says in verse 5 of that chapter, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Uh, in, in fact, in King James it says, um, more than I do. I mean, he really is is emphasizing the use of the gift of tongues. 
Um, but then he says this, because they were out of order, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the, the value of speaking in tongues when it's done properly and in order, but also the silliness of speaking in tongues if it's out of control. He says, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge of prophecy or word of instruction? Um, he says it down in verse 9, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without its meaning. And then he says this, if I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and he's a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And then here's the verse, Carl. So what shall I do? He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. Now, here's the idea. Because they were speaking in tongues, and, and, and the gift of tongues is not a, a language, at least the way it's described here, it's not a language that other people are going to understand. Uh, it's not like on the, the day of, of Pentecost, the first day of the church, when they spoke in tongues, it was a sign gift pointing to Jesus, and everybody understood what was being said. It was a truly miraculous event, the introduction of the Holy Spirit into the church. Well, that's the, the initial uh, use of tongues in the church, that, that miraculous sign gift. But what Paul is talking about here is a different use of the gift. He talks about this gift of tongues. It's a gift of, I call it the vertical gift. It's a gift between you and God alone. It is the least of all of the gifts because it doesn't necessarily edify the body unless there's an interpretation and then it sort of jumps into the category of being a prophecy where people can understand. But in spite of all of that, Carlos, Paul says, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. It's a good gift. And I think we... Uh, misuse it. We misuse it two ways. We misuse it by being out of control. You know, you can go into churches and everybody's speaking in tongues at the same time and, and they, they, they think that's the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. That's just nonsense. The way to use the, the, the gift of tongues empowered by the Holy Spirit is when you're in an assembly given the opportunity to at the most three would speak in tongues, and there always has to be an interpretation. Because Paul says in the verse that you pointed out, um, well, we want people to understand this. If they come in, everybody's speaking in tongues at once, won't they think you're crazy? So tongues is a great gift. But he also says in the verse that you asked about, praying with the Spirit, things you don't understand, but also praying with my mind. And we would say in our native language, our English or Spanish, um, because we, we benefit more by understanding what's going on than not understanding what's going on. Now, Carlos, let me get away from your question for a moment and hopefully encourage our listening audience to really explore this gift of tongues. I know there are people who don't believe in the gift of tongues. Others don't believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today, but, but both of those positions are without biblical warrant. The gift of tongues is a gift that edifies the user of that gift and enhances our relationship to God. 
Now, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to enhance their relationship with the Lord? Who wouldn't want to be strengthened? That's what edify is, strengthened by the use of these gifts. And so many of us, we just discard the gift, Carlos, because we don't understand it, we don't get it. Um, But there are times when faith takes over. And by that I mean we don't need to pray with understanding. When we pray according to the Word of God and we're using our, our, our gift of language, the, the, the tongue that God has given us, then we know a couple of things. We know, one, that we're praying in the will of God. And if we're praying in the will of God, we know that those prayers are going to be heard and answered. The second thing we know is that we're praying for things that we don't have to understand. Now, when I use my gift of tongues, Carlos, um, Usually, I, I, I again, I don't know. I don't have the gift of interpretation, so I don't understand what I'm saying. I get a sense, I think, of what the Spirit is saying. But um, the idea is, um, I know, and and especially for me on Sunday mornings, that's the the time I use the gift the most. Is I just want to be sure that because I've got Bible studies to deliver, I've got people that I'm praying for to get saved. I know we're going to have three services on Sunday. There's going to be a lot of people there. I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. I want to be used by God for His glory. And when I'm praying, even though I don't understand the language, I know God is going to hear those prayers and answer them. And if I'm praying the will of God, that's a good thing. I don't have to personally benefit. However, having said that, I know that I'm praying in His will. So that's what he's talking about. Let's pray through my I also pray with my mind. I mean, I don't spend as much time praying in tongues as I do praying in English. And I pray out loud, typically, so I want to be heard. It's easier for me to carry on a conversation as if Jesus was there. So I pray much more in my earthly language than I do in my heavenly language. And it's a good good gift. So that's what he's talking about. I'm going to pray in the Spirit, but I'm also going to pray with my mind. And I think that's the good balance, Carlos, that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. One of the things we have to do very carefully when we're studying 1 Corinthians, or we've got questions about 1 Corinthians, is we have to remember that this is a um, church that is completely out of control, Uh, The first letter to Corinth is a a letter of scolding, rebuke. Paul is chastising them for being out of order and then telling them how to get into order. And if we lose that sense of purpose that that Paul is writing with the intent, then we're going to take a lot of these things out of context, and that's really going to mess us up. So, Carlos, I hope that answers your question. That was, uh, for me... Um, one of the passages of Scripture was a brand new Christian that I really needed to understand. Uh, I remember going to these crazy churches, and there's nobody holding on the line, so that's why I'm going on about this question. But we, we went to all kinds of churches. I, I was just one of those guys that couldn't get enough, so Paula and I would, would get up in the morning. We'd go to an early service. We'd go to a, a late morning service. We'd find an afternoon service, and we'd try to find an evening service. And because they were all different churches, we had all these different experiences. And some of them didn't make sense. Others seemed to make more sense. But I just kept thinking, why do some people, you go into church, everybody's speaking in tongues at once. Is that real or is that counterfeit? And then you go into other churches and there's no emphasis on the gift. 
of tongues at all. And what I learned in my study was the importance of balance. And that's what Paul is talking about uh, in the verse that you asked about. I'll pray with my spirit. Yes, I'll pray in tongues. By faith, exercising the gift God has given me. But I'm also going to pray with my mind. That's the balance in the passage. For all of our listeners here, let me encourage you as strongly as I can to ask God for this gift of tongues, receive it by faith, and start practicing it. Don't worry about the lies of the enemy. Don't worry that it seems silly and makes no sense. Just enjoy the fact that you can walk with Jesus and know you've been praying in his perfect will. Good question, Carlos. Here is a question from Peter. He says, my question is about Kanye West becoming a Christian. Do you think his conversion is real? And if it is, should he not be more humble about our faith? Um, Peter, let me focus on the last part of your question first and ask you an honest question. How humble were you when you first got saved? Let me tell you something. I wasn't very humble. I still had all kinds of pride that the Lord was going to begin to deal with. And as a new believer, we've got to give people some room to grow. Um... Is his conversion real? Who knows? Time will tell. I personally believe that that what I'm seeing is a man whose heart has been changed by God. That's what being born again is all about. I see a man transforming and really struggling with some of the, the worldview things that uh, he's, he's always espoused and, and in fact been very vocal about. And now I see him really struggling. I read an article uh, about him going to his wife, who is famous, Kim Kardashian West, uh, and he was asking her uh, to to dress more modestly. Now, yes, Kim Kardashian to dress modestly—that's asking a lot. She's making a ton of money uh, by not dressing uh, modestly. In fact, at times, not dressing at all. And um, she looked at him and she said, well, you made me this way. That's how I got famous. And, uh, you know, I know at that moment he had some some issues to deal with, you know, asking for forgiveness from her, from from the Lord, but just asking her to, to, to prayerfully consider um, his perspective. Uh, I know he's telling people about Jesus all the time now. Peter, when I first got saved... That's all I could do. But remember, he's a baby Christian. And he is a man who is constantly in the spotlight. Uh, Whether that spotlight's been given to him by God or not, we need to pray for him. Um, but, But with this issue of humility, believe me, God is able to keep us humble. So, to me, he looks like his conversion is genuine. Uh, I I hope and pray that it is. I'm rooting for him, and I'm actually quite anxious to see um, the changes that are going to be coming in his life. I'm I'm anxious to see as he continues the sanctification process, and and we'll watch how he is transformed. You know, we all as believers, um, Peter, we need to... um, pray for 
people who are famous and get saved because it's hard. You know, Kanye West is a Christian for a short time and Joel Osteen is putting putting him on stage, uh, beaming him all over the world. There are people that are trying to elevate him in, in, in into a position that God wouldn't have him take. God's trying to teach him to be a servant and there are people who are serving him. So we need to pray for him. It's really, really hard. So I hope that makes sense. Here's an interesting question from Philip. Let me give you the phone number again. We'd love your calls at 340-9585. Philip says, I'm a Christian, but I've been concerned that Christian businesses have discriminated against gay people who want to be married, and in parentheses put like a florist or bakers, etc. Uh, we're supposed to obey the law, so do you think people who do these things should be punished? Um, you know, Philip, there's a, an episode in the book of Acts, early in the book of Acts, where the religious authorities, men who were in authority uh, in Jerusalem, and they came to Peter and James and John and the others, and they told them, look, stop preaching in this name. You've got to be quiet about this Jesus. You're turning the whole world upside down. Stop declaring this name. And Peter, speaking for the group, he said to him, he said, well, you decide whether or not we should obey you or obey God. As for me, I cannot stop declaring this name. So there's the rule that we follow. We are to follow the law. We are to um, live quiet, peaceful lives as much as it's possible. But when would the law tell us to do? Excuse me, had a cough. When what the law tells us to do conflicts with what God has told us to do, then we have to choose to be in God's side. It's that simple. I have a friend of mine who, uh, a, a dear, dear brother in the Lord who God is using wonderfully, who in his profession, I won't identify it because people might know who it is, um, he asked a group of people if it was okay, can I pray for you in a, in a, in a public meeting? And uh, when word got out that he did that, he got in trouble. You know, a, a boss pulled him aside said, um, and the boss was a Christian, he said, we're Christians. And we, we have to obey the law, and you didn't obey the law. And, you know, his answer should have been, should I do what God tells me to do or what you tell me to do? As for me, I have to obey God. So that's really important. We, yeah, we have to obey the law, but not when the law conflicts with what God said. Now, to the first part of your question regarding Christian businesses, it's not the businessmen, the florist or the baker or the photographer. It's not the men who are discriminating against gays. It's the Christians themselves who are being discriminated against. You know, I remember, and I, I never understood this sign, but when I used to be real small, my dad would take me every Saturday to get a haircut. Um, over the sign of our barbershop, there was a sign that said, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. And um, the world has that right. But Christians suddenly don't. 
And they weren't discriminating against gay people in the case of the florist and the baker. Those have been very well-known cases. The state of Colorado has been relentless in its pursuit of the baker. I mean, what, what they've tried to do to his life is, is shameful. And he served gay people in his bakery. He never told somebody, no, you can't come in here. I don't want to serve you. Um, what he did was take a stand in this issue with gay marriage. And he said, marriage is an institution established by God. And I believe my conviction is that marriage is between a man and a woman. It's the only kind of marriage. And, and I can't celebrate the institution of, of gay marriage. And because of that stand, uh, he, he was almost run out of business. Um, and it not been for free Christian legal counsel. By the way, that case went all the way to the Supreme Court where he eventually won. But, but you see, all of those people could have gone and got a wedding cake somewhere else. Same thing with the florist. They could have got floral arrangements from someone else. Um, they didn't want to. They wanted to make an object of this Christian baker and try to ruin his life, and they nearly did. Now, God's very pleased with them. But that's not discrimination. That's not discrimination. Let me take it one step further, Philip. There is a big push in some states, will come to all states, but a big push to force churches in their hiring practices to hire people regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of whether they view themselves as being male or female, or, or um, if, if I hire somebody and they decide to come to work dressed as a woman, I'm supposed to be okay with that. Well, you see, this is a, we're like a foreign country in this world, we churches. And we have a mission that's given to us by God. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? I would never hire anybody here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio who's not saved. I go one step further. I wouldn't hire anybody this church uh, we have a, a medical practice. We have uh, a free school. Um, we got other ministries that, that, that we hire people. Uh, but they're people from our church. I wouldn't even hire somebody from another church. This is the mission that God has given Calvary Chapel. And uh, I want people who are in agreement with that mission. I want people that are walking in the same direction and doing so with the same heart. And it won't be long. It won't be long, mark my words, Philip, it won't be long until, because I'm a reasonably public figure, that someone will come and try to set us up, apply for a job, and I will say we don't hire people from outside the church, and it will be somebody who's gay or somebody who's transgender, and they will claim that they've been discriminated against when that's simply not the case. we can't do the work of God with people who don't know God. It's that simple. So that's the world that we live in, Philip. But um, I, would, I would ask you to sort of think a little harder about your question. It's not the baker, the florist that was discriminating against people. They simply didn't want to honor a wedding that they believed sincerely believed was outside of the will of God. No reason to celebrate 
a, a, a wedding that Jesus himself wouldn't celebrate. So uh, we used to have freedom in this country to follow our faith, but we no longer do, or it's quickly eroding. Uh, so it's one of the things that we really need to understand thoroughly. Good question. Thank you very much, Philip. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we're inside two minutes now. Um, so here's a question I think I can do very quickly because we've been talking about this in our Luke studies on Sundays. Uh, it's from Mark. He says, did Judas have free will or was his fate sealed for eternity? And what Judas, or what Mark is asking is, did Judas betray Jesus of his own free will or did God make him? Because, well, he was the son of perdition uh, from before the beginning of, the, of time. Um, both of the things were true. Judas had free will. He made all of his decisions. He made choices in spite of Jesus giving him opportunity after opportunity to repent. And he simply was unwilling to do so because he didn't want to be in the will of God. He wanted God to be in the will of Judas. And that's how the enemy started using uh, or used for his approach on Judas. But it was true that God knew that was going to happen, Mark. But God didn't cause it to happen. God sees the future just like he sees the past. And so he knew Judas was going to do it. Judas did exactly that. But the decision was Judas. God simply knew it was going to happen. Good question. We have 30 minutes left in the Tuesday show. We'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. Thanks for hanging in with us. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-5757 for your calls and questions. Here's a question. I hope I understand it from Jason. Why are people who lead worship called pastors? I don't see worship pastor in the Bible. Uh, Jason, lots and lots of places have people who are leading worship who aren't pastors at all. Um, um, our worship leader here um, didn't start out that way. When, when he began uh, leading the worship team, he was not a pastor. Uh, personally, I want... Uh, the, the head worship person in our church to be a pastor. Um, uh, I, I see their ministry as pastoral. They've got their own little group. Um, you know, we have uh, three or four different worship teams, four different worship teams here at Calvary Chapel, and he's over all of them. I want the emphasis to be not just on the worship practice itself, the music, 
but but um, he's responsible to lead Bible studies and and um, just take care of his people to, to, the same way any other what we call senior pastor would. Uh, I want him to have the heart for those people. So uh, we watched Pastor Lane. Um, uh, I'm going to guess here, Jason, but um, I'm going to guess that he was probably doing our just our worship leader. Uh, for maybe two or three years, um, and then uh, we we promoted him. We we laid hands on him and and uh, ordained him as a pastor. And he's been doing a wonderful job for all that time. So you certainly don't need to be a pastor to lead worship. In a lot of churches, the only qualification is being proficient or or good doing uh, doing the music, leading the music. Um, but for me, I wanted a little bit more. I wanted the people on the worship team to have somebody they could go to uh, if they couldn't get to me. Somebody who'd have time just for them. And uh, it's worked out really, really well for us. As to not seeing worship pastor in the Bible, you don't see youth pastor in the Bible. Uh, and yet we have youth pastors. I think um, churches change uh, depending on the culture and the time and the, the, the era of history that we live in. Uh, and we're all... Um, prone to to following those kinds of trends, it works out well in the West. Um, so um, I don't see any problem with having worship pastor, uh, as long as that man really is a pastor, as a pastor's heart, he's walking with the Lord. Jason, I personally think um, his position is is perhaps more difficult than mine. Um, I'm teaching the word, but but he's leading the congregation into worship. And when we're sticklers here for making sure that the people are on that stage, uh, we know their walk with the Lord. We know their hearts before the Lord. And Pastor Lane is the one in in our church who's responsible to me to make sure that everybody who's up there on stage is up there with the right heart. So uh, just because you don't see a particular role in the Bible doesn't mean that it's it's anti-biblical. Uh, it just means that things have changed and uh, we do things a little bit different. Here's a good question from Andrew. He says, Pastor on William Lane Craig says that there's some evidence that Genesis may not refer to a literal 24-hour day of creation, thus giving Christians room to believe scientific theories about the ancient age of the earth. What do you say? Let me say a couple of things. William Lane Craig is brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant. He's one of the smartest people. When you got a thousand people in the room, and William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig is there, uh, he's the smartest guy in the room. Um, loves Jesus with all of his heart. And having said that he's smart, and that he loves Jesus, let me also say that he's wrong. Um, he is one of those guys who I think has outsmarted himself in this particular area, and he's very solid in other places. So um, this is not to be considered a knock at all. But I think when you're really, really smart and you're ministering as he does to other really, really smart people, he's on college campuses, uh, he's, he's, uh, his ministry is apologetics, and he's always being challenged. I think sometimes you get so in, tired of answering questions by saying, you know, we don't know for sure, or this is what it says, and people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I think he has compromised a little bit in this area. Um, there is zero evidence in Genesis 
um, that it does not refer to a literal 24-hour day. Uh, I'll go one step further. The Holy Spirit goes out of his way to make us understand he is saying a literal 24-hour day. The morning and the evening, or actually Genesis says the evening and the morning, and that's the first day and the second day and the third day, the evening and the morning. So the Holy Spirit is emphasizing that it is a 24-hour day. The Hebrew word yom is never, ever used in any literature to describe anything other than a literal 24-hour day. And so to say, well, you know, maybe it means a day, but, you know, Peter says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Maybe it's a day slash age, and so it, it could be a day that lasted a thousand years or a million years. And really what they're trying to do is answer the questions about the guy who says, well, we know that the earth is a millions or billions of years old. We have carbon dating, and we see this, and, and it's it's no surprise to turn on um, what I call science junk television and have people say, you know, four billion years ago, this happened. And, 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 you know, those are really smart people. But remember, they begin with the premise that there is no God. William Lane Craig should know better. And uh, I have no, again, no problems with this ministry. I, I actually have listened to William Lane Craig quite a bit. Uh, he's um, uh, been a blessing uh, this is just one blind spot that he's got, and um, I really don't understand why. Andrew, there isn't any evidence at all that would indicate that a 24-hour day is anything other than literally 24 hours. Very, very important. 340-9585, here is an anonymous question. My son, a college student, has decided, well, let me get, before I go there, let me go to the phone. I got, don't want to keep people waiting on the phone. I'll come back to that one. Let's go to Ray calling on line one from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Ray, you there? On, on the waiting list, okay. so I got right on. Um, okay, you're there. I have, a quest, I have a question going back to the uh, Genesis thing of, well, it was, you know, not necessarily 24-hour days and all, but what your, your reading was uh, that uh, there was the evening and then the day. And it's also uh, in a different spot, but it said, and uh, God created, uh, he said, well, let there be light, and there was light. So, uh, you know, we normally think of a day as starting at midnight and it's dark, but, you know, everybody's supposedly asleep. I mean, back in the farmer days, he, he, went, he went to sleep with the cows and got up, at, you know. So uh, what what's your drift on that as far as that being in context as to why did it say... It was evening and then day. Okay? okay? I can do that. Thank you, Ray. Okay. And it's not Thank day. You. Okay, it's it's not day, Ray. It's morning. There was the evening and then the morning. Now, we have to understand that, that the Jews were different than we are. We, we think of getting up in the morning and that begins a day. Uh, the day began in a Jewish culture at dusk. 
when the sun went down, that was the beginning. We talk about a Sabbath day. Um, uh, we would say Friday night at 6 o'clock, the, the sun goes down. Uh, the Jews would call that Saturday. That would be the day they would celebrate the Sabbath, and they would do that until the sun went down uh, uh, the following night. So 6 o'clock on what we call Saturday, they would, they would be done uh, honoring the Sabbath. So it was just a completely different understanding of time. So the evening and the morning, not the evening and the day, the evening and the morning. Um, also, we, we've got the distinction made. Uh, we've got the countdown. One, two, three, four, five, six days, and then on the seventh day, God rested. So um, there's just no room there um, to capitulate to so-called science by saying, well, we've got carbon dating, we've got proof of, uh, of, of an ancient earth or an old earth. And more and more, Ray, more and more, I'm watching Christians sell out on this issue simply because of what appears to be overwhelming scientific evidence that the earth is aged way beyond what it is. Uh, I have no problem saying that in my uh, understanding the earth is less than 10,000 years old. People say, well, that's crazy. You know, you can go around and see that this has been here for millions of years and uh, there's simply no evidence. All of that science, again, I want to repeat this, begins with the premise that there is no God, that the creation account is not true. So then what they do is try to find um, a loophole. They try to find um, evidence that would support that there is no God, so the creation account happened a different way. Uh, we've got it in Genesis 1, we've got it in John 1. Um, Jesus said, let there be light, and there was. And uh, that's how the whole process began. Good question, Ray. Thank you very, very much. Let me go back to the question that I started to anonymously. It says, my son, a college student, has decided that there is no objective truth. My heart is broken, so what do I say to him when he says Christ is true for me, but not true for him. Um, anonymous, these are always heartbreaking things and, and and really difficult to navigate. And I think sometimes we try to do too much and we sit down and we argue with with our child, you know, college is stolen what we raise him to believe. Um, and the truth is, if they don't believe there's an objective truth, they've got to be saved. You know, we get questions all the time about what are we, how are we losing all the young people? We're losing a whole generation of Christians. We're not losing anybody. Those kids were never saved. Um, when they go out, out from under their parents' faith, out from under their parents' uh, church, uh, they've got to make decisions on their own. They're now adults, and God is going to bring them to their own tree of choice. And uh, it's, it's an amazing thing that they will believe a college professor that they've never known, they know nothing about him, but because of his presentation, because of his confidence, because of his intellect, they'll just throw away everything that they were raised to believe, and they'll do it for one reason, they want to sin. Yep, I said it, and as your son wants to sin. Now, the other thing to understand here, and this is just logic 101, is when somebody says to me, well, uh, I've got to go find my truth. I'll tell them there is only one truth. By definition, look the word up. There's only one truth. 
Truth is not relative. Truth doesn't change from person to person. The same thing is true for me, is true for them. Jesus Christ is Lord. The fact that they don't believe that doesn't make it untrue. So what we have to do is explain to them that truth has to be mutually exclusive, by definition. You know, Christians get hammered all the time because we say that our faith is exclusive, but the truth is that that every religion is exclusive. Every religion believes that they are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. There's no room for believing conflicting things. So what you do is two things. You stay close to Jesus. You let your light shine in your son's life. You challenge him to think for himself and get beyond parroting what a college professor has said or what other college students are saying. And challenge him to examine what the word truth actually means. And then let the Holy Spirit do the work. Your son is in what I call a weaning time, a testing time. And while it doesn't feel like it, it's really a good thing. Because those children that have been raised to know the Lord and run away from them, it's amazing how frequently they return when their lives fall apart. You see, there's no objective truth. I've got my truth and you've got your truth. Uh, That just doesn't satisfy for very long at all. We're all built instinctively with the knowledge of God and the knowledge that we're going to stand before that God and be judged one day. And as your child grows, he or for the others of you, she, they're going to have to make a decision. And uh, your example of your joy in Christ, your your abundance in Christ, uh, and your prayers. Believe me, God loves them more than you do, and he's going to go get them. He's going to do the best he can. Good question. Sorry for your pain. You know, I often wonder these days, and I'm going to say something, and everybody's going to say, I can't believe Pastor Ron said that. But I, 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 I'm amazed that parents actually pay money, not a little bit of money, a lot of money, to send their kids to college to have their faith stolen from them. And they come back, it's almost like they've been lobotomized. Because they don't even know how to think. They can't think for themselves. And so, um, pray for them. Here is a question from Gene. I like this one too. He said, Pastor, and with an election approaching, I'm thinking that Christians ought to vote for those who are socialist-leaning because the early church in Acts practiced socialism to ensure that everyone had what they needed. Am I on the right track? Gene, you couldn't be on the wrong track any more than you are. So uh, the right track is just just turn around and go the other direction. Um, the early church wasn't making a statement about an economic system. It wasn't making a statement about socialism. It wasn't making a statement about providing for the needs of everybody. You know what that was? That was a statement of love. You remember the story? Barnabas came in, a son of consolation, and sold his property and laid all of the proceeds at the feet of the apostles and said, the money is yours. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to do the same thing, but they didn't want to give all their money away, and they got in trouble for that, of course. 
Um, but the idea was they loved people so deeply. The church in the first century became family. I think sometimes we forget the Jewishness of the early book of Acts. When a Jew would leave Judaism and convert to Christianity, they would be completely disowned, completely cut off. That's why you see these huge crowds gathered, because they had no place else to go. So they, they went and stayed in the safety of their new family, Christians. And they were all excited, and they were all learning. But at the same time, life was really, really hard. Jewish parents would hold funerals for their children who became believers, or for a husband or a wife who became believers. They would hold funerals. They're dead to me, they would say. And it was a responsibility of the early church to care for those people. Why? Because that's God's heart. It has nothing to do with a political system. It has nothing whatsoever to do with what we call socialism. This was just God saying, take care of your neighbor. That's the thing you want to do when you first get saved. You're suddenly concerned about other people. So, um, no, the socialism that we're seeing become so popular is creating an environment where people don't want to work. They don't need to work because the government's going to take care of them. This isn't about a government. God's word to remember to the church, not to a, not to a government, not to a particular nation. So that's very important. They did not practice socialism. They practiced love. Now, here's the problem with those political candidates who are socialist-leaning, left-leaning, or um, all the way left. Um, Every one of them supports enthusiastically the unhindered killing of children. So, how in the world could you vote for somebody who's socialist-leaning when they're also in favor of killing children? We know God's Word says that homosexuality is an aberrant lifestyle, a sinful lifestyle. And the church is supposed to be light in the darkness. We're supposed to love people enough to tell them the truth. Every one of those left-leaning, socialist-leaning candidates are all in on any kind of sexuality you want to identify with. How could you vote for someone who is going to happily lead people to a lifestyle that's going to end up in hell? So, Gene, these are things you got to think about them more thoroughly. What would Jesus do? Would Jesus... Have us support somebody who wanted to kill babies? I don't think so. We've killed 65 million babies since 1973 with no end in sight. Would Jesus support somebody who would freely encourage others to live a lifestyle that is described in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, in the New Testament, as people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God? So get the heart of God. Uh, again, vote, make choices. But but socialism is not the answer, not here, not now. Never was. The book of Acts 
they just took care of their own. The church took care of their own. Let me say one more thing. I've got like four minutes left. Um, you know, uh, when, when we started Malta Medical, Gene, um, I believe, now this is just me thinking out loud, but I believe that that God was going to take care of his own people. That was back when uh, Malta Medical seven years old. Um, you know, the health care debate was raging. People couldn't afford insurance. Uh, it was so hard to, to navigate just going to a doctor. And when the Lord said, let's start this, it's time to go, um, I really did believe that probably 70% of the people we'd see at Malta Medical would be from our church. I believe that so strongly. I thought, well, if we get 30% people from the outside, we still have opportunities to save people. Uh, Gene, it's been exactly the opposite. God takes care of his own. Anybody who wants to go to Malta Medical and have free medical care and really good medical care can. But we've probably got closer to 90% of the people who are patients at Malta Medical who are not from this church. And many unsaved. We have a very large homosexual uh, patient list. We have... um, transgendered people coming in all the time and people get saved so yeah God takes care of his own but he's also winning souls and uh, we're not a socialist church because we give away free medical care and free school Um, we just want to love people and that's what God does Gene I hope that makes sense and gives you something else to think about He'll be the last question since we've been talking about this. It's the next one in order. It's anonymous. It says, i got two minutes. Uh, would you do a wedding for people who didn't want to get a marriage license, whether they were um, gay or straight? Um, and what if they feel like God is the only one who needs to approve their marriage? Um, anonymous, I would not do a wedding for people like that at all. Uh, we are, as Christians, told to obey the law and the law said recognizes marriages that are licensed so we get a license um, you know I, I always struggle a little bit especially when Christians ask questions like this why wouldn't they want to be committed why would a woman marry a man who didn't want to be committed to her why would a man be committed or marry a woman who didn't want to be committed to him and um, it's not the the, the, the government mandating a marriage license. It's just saying that that's the tool that allows them to identify a husband and a wife. And the people that say they feel like God's the only one who needs to approve the marriage, you know, the the super spiritual types, uh, those are people that are just looking for a way to sin without being committed and they need to uh, they need to repent. It really is. So no, I would never do a wedding. Uh, You know, I once did a wedding for somebody who uh, I knew really, really well, and there was no marriage license. I didn't know it until the end. I said, I'll never do another one until I see the license, and we do that. So I hope that answers your question. Hey, we'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word with the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Well,